For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. Have you ever stopped to think about how all these data from spacecraft get from Mars back home to Earth? Between Curiosity, InSight, and six orbiters around the red planet, there's a tremendous amount of pictures and spectra and seismographs and, and more beaming back to the deep space network here on Earth. Some people in the science community are starting to worry that our communications infrastructure, which are the orbiters themselves, is aging and well, that we might be at risk of losing the daily downlinks that we've become accustomed to. What if these orbiters fail? Will Curiosity be able to call home as often as it does now? What about future rovers like Mars 2020 or ExoMars? While NASA may struggle to get funding for infrastructure replacements, there is no shortage of ideas on how to go about it. And one of those ideas comes from Michael Staub. He's a mission operations engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. In addition to being a flight director for missions like Cassini and Opportunity, Michael's been working on an idea to reinforce that communications backbone and ensure access to all the valuable science coming back from Mars. All right, so we're here with Michael Staub from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Michael, why don't we start with a little bit about you? Tell us about your background, your education, and uh, you know how you got into the position that you're in today. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a rocket scientist by training. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in aerospace engineering, one from Wichita State, one from Georgia Tech. I'm a PhD candidate in the School of Astronautical Engineering at the University of Southern California. So I, I stick with the rocket science and the engineering. Love it. It's the, <laughs> it's the best field ever. Um, so what I do at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, I've had a number of different roles. So I've been the flight controller for the Cassini spacecraft, um, was there for almost two years, um, was the uh, kind of kind of killed the spacecraft because I sent the very last command to it, oh, but no. <laughs> uh, I was told to do that by the project manager, so I, I don't really apologize for that. And then um, and then I got picked up as a spacecraft systems engineer and a flight director for the Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity, which was a great experience. I remember watching it land in high school thinking, man, that's a great project. I would love to work on that if it was going to last more than 90 days. And it broke everybody's expectations and you know when I finally showed up it was still going strong and I was uh, I was with them for about a year um, before the mother of all dust storms caught us and uh, I was the flight director during the week of the storm um, I sent unfortunately I kind of have this reputation where I sent the last command to Cassini and I sent the last real command to opportunity and I built the last commands during the recovery effort. So I was also the dust storm lead systems engineer for, for the mission about two weeks before the storm hit us. 
and I was the lead engineer for that recovery effort for the eight or so months we were trying to get opportunity to, to phone home. So three years at the lab, two different missions, both met their end of missions while I was on there. And uh, now I've been picked up. I'm a flight systems engineer for uh, the NASA ISRO SAR mission. That's a Earth Climate Observer a joint mission between NASA and the Indian Space Agency that's going to be doing land, ice, and seawater monitoring, set to launch in January of 2022. And I may be moving over and doing some operations development and training for Mars 2020 crews, launch crews, and EDL activities. Awesome. So how does the, uh, uh, you know, considering your reputation as the Grim Reaper of spacecraft, what's uh, what's the Indian Space Agency think about having you on the team? Um, <laughs> you know, m m most people will joke around and say, you know, if you've got a if you got a spacecraft that's been around too long and you need it to go away to free up some budget, I know a guy. <laughs> It'll be gone in 18 months. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's just kind of how things happen. I came in on Cassini when they were, they knew they were going to end yeah. 18 months when I, when I came in and then with opportunity, you know, I, I think we, unfortunately, we took for granted the fact that opportunity just kept going. And we never, you know, I think we took for granted the fact that any day there could be a planet killing dust storm that was going to catch us and that was going to be it. And it just happened to occur on my watch. <laughs> yeah. We were at the, fortunately we were at the pretty far end of the bell curve of uh, longevity for, for that Rover. So uh, I guess it was only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to talk about communications today. And I thought maybe um, we could start with like a, a quick overview. So uh, what is the, what's the infrastructure situation at Mars in terms of how spacecraft call home? You know, we've got a lot of spacecraft there. Um, they've all got different kinds of antennas. What is the, the overall outlook of, of that look like? So the way that we communicate with our Martian spacecraft is we have two methods. The first method is called direct to earth and that uses an X band communication system and is primarily for getting our command files into the spacecraft and then getting some kind of real-time data back from the spacecraft while we're talking to it in order to update our clocks. That's primarily what it's used for. Because of the distance and the power required to send significant amounts of data directly from the surface to Earth, we can't really build really large telecom systems for the surface missions because we have to land that mass on the surface. Telecom systems are very heavy and they're very volume constrained. So to get a rover to pack it inside of a capsule to get it to Mars, we have to make these very small telecom systems to get everything to the ground. But we have another method that we get our data back, which is how we get 70, 80, sometimes 90% of all the data back from our service missions. And that's through UHF Proximity 1 uh, telecom links. And then what we do is we take a UHF antenna and we link up with a UHF receiver on one of our Mars Relay Network orbiters. And we send our data through that link. We can get much higher data rates. And because the orbiters come overhead and can kind of, and can stay as, up as long as 12 to 15 minutes, we can send back a significant amount of data. For opportunity, because we, we didn't have flash anymore when I came on, we could only average on, on a day send about 50 to 60 megabits of data per day, as opposed to less than a megabit of data through the DTE X-band system. MSL, uh, Mars 2020 baseline, they can do as high as seven to 800 megabits per day on average through the UHF link. And like I said, the way that we get that data is through the Mars Relay Network. Now these are 
repurposed orbiters around Mars that have completed their science missions. And now what they do is they, they support UHF telecom links with the surface missions. We've got five spacecraft in the network. Three of them I would consider are the primes. Two of them are backups. The primes are Mars Odyssey, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. And our backup orbiters are MAVEN and the Mars Express Orbiter operated by ESA. So what we do is we, it's what's called, um, and I'm going to forget the word right, right now as we're talking. Um, so let's push past the word. But rather than sending the data directly from the surface, we send it up to bent pipe. Bent pipe. That's okay. It. I've heard that. Got one. it. <laughs> so we use a bent pipe method. So we send the data from the surface up to the orbiter. And then the orbiter, once it talks with the DSN, use, has a much larger high-gain antenna, a much more powerful transmitter. It can send data then back to Earth at much higher rates than we ever could. So we use a bent pipe method that the data goes from the surface up to the orbiter and then the free orbiter to the deep space network. Okay. So, so what's, what's the, the, the pro of this setup? I mean, other than the fact that we were able to leverage existing assets, like is, is this working well in general or... Um, but on the flip side, is there a lot of opportunities in how this is set up? So originally, and, and kind of the reason this network exists is because of the MER rovers. So in the baseline design for MER, they were meant to send all their data back through the X-band DTE system. With, with MER's high-gain antenna, we could send data back just a little bit above 28,000 bits per second. And that's how we were baseline to send all the data from the mission. The UHF antenna that we sent with them was meant to merely be a test with the Mars Global Surveyor and Mars Odyssey at the time. Well, it turns out that the UHF system worked so well that we pretty much scrapped sending any of our data back through X-Band, and we just stored it all on board in our flash system and sent it up to the orbiters. So then subsequent missions decided to accept that same architecture. MSL was built to send most of its data up through the UHF Prox-1 protocol, as is InSight, as did Phoenix, as now Mars 2020 will. So because the network works so well, and we've proven that that Prox-1 deep space protocol works so well, most missions decide now, I'm just going to send my data up through, through the Mars Relay network, rather than try and send it directly back to Earth. So, so it works pretty well then, and it's kind of a happy discovery with, uh, with opportunity and spirit then. It works very well. Okay. So then what, what are the opportunities of the whole setup? Um, you know, why, why seek changes to it or why propose new missions to, uh, to help out there? So there's, I kind of have to explain how the network is set up and why we recognize that there is some risk with how the network is, is currently, um, is, is currently operating. Sure. So with our, our, our three prime orbiters, and I'm going to specifically talk about Odyssey and MRO. Those are in what we call sun-synchronous orbits. That means that they come over the same location at the same time of day every day. And for doing long-term observations of, of a certain area, that's kind of what you want because you get the same sunlight over the area at the same time. So you can distinguish if there's been changes from day to day because you have the same lighting features. Well, for telecom relay, that works really well because it guarantees that we have two overflights every single day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. So to have consistent relay between your ground assets and Earth 
in order to do our planning properly because there's some delay. We have to get data from the vehicle. We have to take that data and we use it to plan, whether it's a science mission, whether whether it's collecting science, whether it's driving somewhere, whether it's just whatever the science team chooses to do. We have to get a consistent day-to-day feedback of data from the vehicle and how it's doing. It's also for, for health and safety of the mission. We have to hear from our vehicle to know that it's there and it's doing okay. MSL's computer issues kind of brings that to light. It's good to have day-to-day access to what your system's doing, especially yeah. when you're trying to do anomaly resolution. So those two missions are in sun-synchronous orbit. Now, the issues with them is that they're very old. Hmm. Okay, Mars Odyssey launched in 2001. It's currently <laughs> just past its 18th year since launch. And while that is a testament to how good the spacecraft we build at NASA, now good our subcontractors build our spacecraft, and how good our operations teams are to keep them going, it alludes to an issue that those are the two primary orbiters we get all our data from. Okay. Pretty much. Those are the two big ones. So we've got a lot of, a lot of eggs in the basket of, of old spacecraft, basically. Yes. So MRO launched in 2006, I believe, or got to Mars in 2006. Um, so it's been in operation for more than a decade. And Keep in mind, the design life of these missions was only about six years yeah. at best. So the fact that they're still going is a testament to how good they're built and how well they're operating. Now, the trace gas orbiter is not in a sun-synchronous orbit. It's in what we call, it's in a highly inclined prograde orbit. So it orbits um, at a high inclination in the same direction that Mars rotates uh, around its axis. Now, because of J2 effects, which are orbital perturbations because of non-uniform mass of the planet in a non-uniform gravity field, its orbit precesses to the west. So in terms from a telecom perspective, TGO is only in view about two weeks out of the month. The other two weeks, it's precessing around the planet, so it's not in view. So we can't use it for telecom. Now the two backup orbiters, MEX and MAVEN, are both in highly inclined and also elliptical orbits. So from the from a telecom perspective, again, their orbits also precess to the west, so they're not always available for relay. And because they're highly elliptical, we can only use them for relay when they're close to the planet. If they're far out away at their apoapsis point, 4,000 kilometers away, the UHF system on the rovers doesn't have enough gain to get a signal that the, that the, uh, the electras on board those spacecraft can actually distinguish that there's data coming in. So we can only do relay once they're close. Now, with Maven, we can do really, really, really good relays. I think MSL once did a 1.8 gigabit relay Yikes. with Maven because it was really close, and it's hung in the sky for a long time. But it's got to be close to the planet, and those opportunities don't come around very often. So what we have is kind of a confluence here of we have two orbiters, which are the prime assets that we get all our data from, that are old and are beginning to kind of show their age they're kind of faulting out more, they're having battery issues, they're going into safe mode more. And then we have three other orbiters that are not really conducive to doing consistent day-to-day telecom. So let's imagine, and this is part of the proposal uh, section that I've worked on, is a risk assessment, is what would happen if we lost MRO and Odyssey? Well, you can imagine for up to 10 days, you don't hear anything from your vehicle except a few megabits, maybe 
from your direct, from your X-band system on the surface that I'm here. It can't send back drive data. It can't send back a lot of health data. It can only really send real-time data. Just to basically say, I'm here, I'm alive. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I think I heard uh, or read recently that um, we've adjusted Maven's orbit to uh, to try and be a little bit better. How much better did it get? Um, I am still waiting for the new ephemeris, so I can kind of uh, so I can plug that in and see how it how it changes the numbers. But it's it's still a it's still a fact that Maven is only really conducive to tele, to relay when it is close to the planet, okay. and the fact that it's not sun synchronous means that we don't get a consistent, we're not going to get at least one overflight from that vehicle every day. Right, right. Okay. So then basically the the, the general worry is that um, if we do lose one of these orbiters, which is not out of the question given their age, um, we're putting our surface assets at risk. And, and we've got two spacecraft there now, another one on the way. Two of them are flagships. So that's a lot of money invested in those surface vehicles. And then we may not yeah, have I, a... I, I, I use the I use the comparison that the only way we can talk with our seven billion dollars of investment yeah. <laughs> on the surface of Mars is with two vehicles that were built over a decade ago, and there have been a lot of studies at JPL to build a dedicated telecom. But every time we get close to, are we going to decide to build it? We always cut them, and this has been a kind of a um, a complaint of the science community at Mars for a while is that we have not physically invested enough in the relay infrastructure to get data back from our vehicles. Not just so that we can complete the science objectives, but that we can safely operate our vehicles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, one of our listeners, Bradley, was asking about uh, ground stations. And if you compare the whole the whole end-to-end -end system, so from <laughs> surface to the orbit of Mars, then back to you know the deep space network on Earth, and then to you guys at JPL. Um, what needs work first? Is 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 the the Mars situation higher urgency, or do we need more investment on the deep space network size? Well, the deep space network never gets enough love. Yeah, or it never gets the adequate amount of love that it deserves for being such a critical piece of the space exploration architecture. But in terms of Mars, it's definitely at Mars. It's the relay infrastructure at Mars that really needs the upgrade. And really, we needed it about five years ago. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we always are like, well, we'll think about it, and then, and then we'll, we'll do a study, and then, oh, well, we don't have the money for it, or we don't have the budget for it. Oh, there's no science. There's, there's really no, there's no science reason to go do this, right. so it always gets cut. But, yeah, the, the relay infrastructure at Mars, that's, that's the really critical piece right now that we need to focus on. Okay. So let's hear about your proposal then. Um, you know, what's the, what's the elevator pitch? Okay. So this concept is not a long-term solution. It is what we call the stopgap. It is meant to bridge the gap between the current relay infrastructure that we have in place with a future long-term sustainable telecom network that eventually can not only support robotic surface missions, but human missions to Mars. Mm. So what this is, is it is not a single telecom orbiter. It is actually a small constellation of small sats because we can make them cheap. Think Marco type uh, 
CubeSats a little bit bigger because they're not designed just to fly by Mars and just last the eight month cruise. They're meant to go into orbit and they're meant to stay there for a couple years. Um, the idea being that they have a lifetime of about three years. That gives us the eight months cruise out to Mars plus maybe a month to get them into the right orbit and then two years to support relay. And if we need to replace them again, we can do another another launch of a couple of these birds to replace that until we can get a more permanent solution there. The primary goal is telecom, simply to make sure that we have consistent, reliable telecom between our surface assets and Earth so that we can continue operating our very, our, our priceless flagship missions that we've also invested a lot of money in. Hmm, okay. So then, uh, okay, so then let's, let's talk about some of the, the, the technology then. And this is, um, listeners were very keen on this. So Lars was really wanting to know, his questions maybe look a little bit off now. He was asking about, you know, what's the dish size on this proposal, but if there's multiple spacecraft, maybe it works a little bit differently. But, you know, where do these, these, these spacecraft, where are they going to orbit? Um, and how are they sending information back home? So we were talking about different types of orbits and how that relates to the ability to do consistent, reliable telecom. So the orbits we're targeting would be sun-synchronous so that we can get that guaranteed two orbits per day, two overflights where we can guarantee that we're going to get relay. Um, we've kind of branched it out of, we don't really know how many birds we need yet because we're still doing that analysis, but think of it as sort of how we kind of do communications here on Earth. So we would have a, think of it as a mothership, with a larger high gain antenna, and its only job is to communicate with the DSN. It can also do relay, but its job is to send the data from the other birds and from the surface back to Mars. The other three, four, five, we don't actually know how many it is right now, consider, think of these like drones. So the mothership is like, is like the queen bee, and these are the drone bees. Mm. So they fly around, they gather the data from the surface, we cross-link, with the mothership, and then the mothership or the queen bee sends the, sends the data back to Earth. And we had to look at that concept because we were asked, how are you going to support five, six of these birds when you've also got MAVEN and TGO and MEX and Odyssey and MRO and your surface missions? You've now added six new spacecraft to the network, and the DSN is still a highly contentious asset. There's only so many dishes on the ground to talk with them. So that's where we kind of came up with the idea. Perhaps we should cross-strap, or not cross-strap, perhaps we, perhaps we should cross-link these vehicles so that only one dish or only one spacecraft is actually talking with the DSN. Okay, so the other five just kind of make like a little bit of a constellation call back to the middle, and that's the, the spacecraft sending information back. Correct. And, and we don't actually know how many it is. It could be as it could be as small as four spacecraft. It could be as high as six. We don't really know. There's 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 studies between how much uh, resiliency do you want in the network? How much um, how much capability do you want? How how you know, basically, there, there's just there's trade offs between risk and, and cost of the vehicles and and because and, we're still in that kind of phase A study, we're still doing sure. a lot of those those trade offs. So we don't actually know how many it is, but it is not a single telecom orbiter. It is a constellation. And is each spacecraft going to be identical then, so that they can step in to cover each other if one fails? Like I, I'd imagine the the mothership one failing, and then the whole constellation's dead, right? Yes. Yeah. So so that's that that was another um, 
key finding in in uh, sort of the early talks I was having with some of the the mission developers at JPL was well if the if the the queen ship goes down well then the whole network's gone well no so so we we strap a not a high gain antenna but maybe a a smaller median gain antenna it doesn't have the same data rate that the big one can do back to earth but it gives you the ability that you can still get your data back to earth if you need to mm, okay. so yeah each each of the vehicles has has redundancy in its telecom systems where if the big one fails and we can't we can't cross link to it anymore the other the drones can still get their data back to earth right right is there um from a technology readiness level like is this anything groundbreaking or is this pretty commonplace equipment to, to get these things functional and we just haven't done this mission for some reason um i would say that it's fairly groundbreaking um given given the concepts that we've done small stats for interplanetary spit for interplanetary space exploration are a are a brand new yeah. concept uh, marco was a was a test demonstration um the fact that it worked and got all the way to Mars was was incredible because <laughs> I didn't think they were going to last more than a couple of weeks because we just never sent spacecraft that size out into deep out into deep space on a cruise and you know they have to do two extra correction maneuvers and they have to do all these things that we do with big spacecraft where we have lots of redundancy and lots of margin and stuff where these were not really meant for that. Yeah. So um, small spacecraft technology is becoming a hot topic at NASA headquarters and also at JPL. We want to be able to miniaturize our spacecraft so that we can maybe do more missions to, to more places rather than spending the three and a half billion dollars for flagship missions. Maybe we can get away with a discovery class mission with a much smaller spacecraft that can do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of TRL, this is probably still very small just because um, a lot of components for small satellites do not have the TRL level yet for doing deep space missions. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you can borrow a lot of heritage from Marco then? Um, we, we could borrow some heritage because they were only meant to get to Mars. They weren't actually meant to go into orbit. They weren't meant to do precise pointing for, for relay back to Earth. Probably there's there there are some components we could take from them, but a lot of it is probably going to be brand new, first one-of-a-kind kind of uh, development. Cool. So uh, I got to try and uh, speak up for the science community. Why not strap a few cameras, a few instruments on these things if we're sending stuff there anyway? Is that a possibility or are we kind of looking to really dedicate these to communication only? Um, no, we we are now talking with some of the, the science, uh, the, the Mars science folks about getting a Marcy-like camera. So Marcy okay. is the camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that- um, It's the climate that one, we, right? Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it, for for opportunity. It's our dust storm monitoring camera. <laughs> this is the one that actually tells us whether there's a dust storm approaching us. Um, and you know, if we lose Odyssey or we lose MRO and we lose that capability, we now long, no longer have the ability to do weather monitoring at Mars. Right. Inside is a solar powered rover. Well, I guess they're not a rover; they're more a lander. <laughs> but uh, they don't. If, if you know if we lose Marcy, they don't have any indication that a dust storm is heading their way until it's already on top of things. So having that ability to still be able to monitor at least with the weather patterns at Mars to see if there's a dust storm coming, there is still a lot of um, there's still probably a lot of interest for having something like that. So we could strap different uh, different cameras on on these orbiters because they're not doing telecom relay all the time. Mm -hmm. They're only doing telecom relay maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes a day. 
So the rest of the time, they could be collecting data for weather monitoring and sending that data back to Earth. So that's maybe a little bit how you spoke about this being a potential help for future human exploration. A, a, a network of weather satellites would definitely be an asset to that kind of mission. Mm -hmm. These probably wouldn't support human missions. If if we were, we would probably build something much more, okay. <laughs> uh, much more robust. Something much more. Um, much more than a CubeSat, something that's meant to last there for 10, 15 years. Well, we'll call it a pathfinding mission then. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, and you mentioned this earlier about, uh, uh, you know, some of these earlier proposals have been maybe shrugged to the side because there's no scientific value. Uh, that's kind of an interesting question. And, and um, one of our listeners, Adam, had it as well as how do you quantify scientific value of a mission like this? I mean, even if, like, forget the mar potential Marcy cameras on there, but... It's, if it's not doing science itself, but it's relaying science, how do you how do you sell that? How do you build that into your, your proposal to say like, hey, this is valuable. It is doing science, just not the way that we typically think about it. Yes, yeah, so I, I kind of thought about this question, and I think there is a there is a way to to phrase it where even though we're not doing dedicated science ourselves, we are enabling these very important flagship missions to continue to do their science in a safe manner. Because if we can't drive, if we can't, for Mars 2020, if we can't sample cache, then the entire Mars sample return architecture is a bust. Mm -hmm. Sample caching is the first step to doing a Mars sample return. If we can't sample cache, we have no Mars sample return. So we could make a claim that this particular telecom architecture is what enables us to continue to do safe science or safe surface operations and enables us to continue to do the science necessary for these missions to complete their level, their level one science objectives and also to complete the necessary steps for us to enable the Mars sample return architecture. Hmm. You think, think NASA will buy it? <laughs> well, I don't know necessarily if they would buy it, but I think, I honestly think if I show them the robustness study in my proposal of what happens if they lose Odyssey and MRO, I think their eyes are going to get real big and they're probably going to be like, well, we're probably going to have to bite the bullet here because we got to do something. Yeah. Because imagine how bad it would be if M2020 gets there and all of a sudden we now can't do consistent we can't consistently operate the vehicle. We can't hear from it on a consistent basis. Yeah. Oh, and now you've got another vehicle that has to contend with not only MSO, not only InSight, but ExoMars. The ESA rover is also using the, is the Mars Relay Network to send their data back. So you've got four missions that are competing for now three different orbiters that only come overhead every so often. Right. Not every day. And I would imagine that data volume coming from Mars 2020 and ExoMars is probably like these, these missions are probably getting more and more data heavy as they, as the newer they are, as they get better instruments, better resolution cameras, all those kinds of things. Right. I, I would say that Mars 2020, probably you're looking at maybe a 15 to 20% increase off of what MSL can do. And MSL can do on average about six to 700 megabits per day. So you're looking maybe as high as a gigabit per day. Just off Mars 2020, now you've got six to seven hundred off of MSL. You've got five to six hundred from Inside, and ExoMars probably is 
is a little bit better than what a Mer Rover could do. So maybe looking at between 100 and 125 megabits per day. Yikes. So you're looking at upwards of you know almost 1.8 gigabits of data throughput per day for you know, if you don't have Odyssey and MRO for a network that only has three assets and they only come over once in a while, and now you have to figure out who has the higher priority. Does MSL have it? Does 2020 have it? Does Insight have it? Or does ExoMars have yeah. it? Yeah, that's uh, going to introduce a fun variable into the uh, science team planning missions or meetings and stuff, I mm-hmm. imagine. Hmm. So um, another idea that I've thought was interesting for a long time is that the concept of a commercial alternative and this is obviously very topical these days all you know the public private partnership is the the hot buzzword of the day um everybody wants to just um unleash the power of the private market so your proposal maybe is a different approach to that and i'm, I'm kind of curious to hear what your take is it uh take on is you know a nasa owned mission or or constellation or however you want to call it versus say you know what if we what if we just paid Lockheed Martin or we paid SpaceX to send a spacecraft there and we just rented bandwidth by the byte? What's the, you know, what's the, the trade-off for each of those kind of things? So I would say that trying to get a Lockheed Martin or a Boeing to build a spacecraft with their own funds and send it to Mars and we just rent the bandwidth probably is not something we could ever sell. Yeah, Because Lockheed Martin and Boeing are in business to make money. They answer to their shareholders. Justifying a billion dollar program to send a couple relay orbiters to Mars when there's no real means to get any profit back from probably is not something they could do. But that doesn't mean that we aren't looking at, at using our commercial partners to help us. One of the components of my proposal is actually using a lot of commercial hardware. We're not going to really build the spacecraft at JPL. We're going to manage the systems engineering work, the design, but commercial partners, specifically maybe small sat companies, are going to provide us with the bus. They're going to provide us with the um, with most of the subsystems hardware. They're going to provide us with a lot of the maybe not the specific telecom hardware, because that's probably something JPL would build. But most of the hardware is not going to be built in-house. It's going to be commercial off-the-shelf, already available, that we can just integrate together and get it on a launch vehicle and send it out to Mars. So that'll help keep your costs down then, presumably. That helps keep the cost down. Because when we're pitching a dedicated telecom orbiter that really is not doing science, that's what has really killed a lot of previous telecom studies and a lot of previous telecom orbiter missions is because you're spending a lot of money for just relay infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You're not getting any science out of it. So there's there's kind of a fine line to walk between getting um, getting the infrastructure there that we desperately need and justifying with headquarters which is the people who give us the money why having that ability right now is worth the cost that we're asking yeah do, do you have a like a baseline cost in mind or like what, what class of mission would this be um this is probably going to be a so i have to remember my classes here um i think this is going to be a class d or a class c mission so um if flagship missions are at the top this one's going to be 
much lower to the ground. It's not going to be we're, – we're probably targeting somewhere between $250 million, maybe $350 million total. And that's for systems engineering, acquisition, launch vehicle, and operations. So try to keep this mission fairly, uh, fairly skinny because we're going to be asking for – I mean that's, that's a good chunk of money. That's, that's half of a discovery proposal. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a good chunk of money. So we got to we got to justify why they need to take funds from somewhere else in order to in order to to support this. So we're going to try and keep it as skinny as possible. And one of the ways we can do that is by using commercial partners to do integration and to provide a lot of the hardware, so we don't have to do custom hardware. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, and that actually kind of answers another question. I, our our listener Hugh is wondering how hard of a sell this is, and and where I kind of was going with that is that. You know why not just buy another science orbiter and put it in sun synchronous and we'll just use that and we've got a new one and we're getting science from it but your answer tells me that that would be way more expensive um we have to understand that when we build when we when we propose a new mission it's it's usually at least a seven-year design cycle to get us from a concept to launch that's kind of typical for most of our missions because we are kind of we need to get something out there fast using the commercial hardware that's already built kind of gives us the ability to speed up the development process a little bit hmm. not by much but it helps us it helps us speed up the process cuz we don't have to build stuff from scratch right right cool okay so what are the next steps then like what's um you know when's the proposal done when do you submit it what's the cycle we can expect um so we're targeting Hopefully sometime this year. Um, I'm working with uh, my section at JPL's um, business department and also our research arm to kind of identify what are the what are the calls that that we should be submitting to that would have the highest chance of us getting some exposure to get us some money to keep to keep doing the mission concept development. Um, so hopefully by this year, um, the mission is baselined to launch in the 2024 Earth-Mars window. 2024, okay, yep. Which I think would put it around October, November of 2024. That sounds about right. So, yeah. we, got, so, we, so we got some time. We, we got about five years, and that, that gives us enough time that we can get the proposal done and we can start getting things built and tested so that we can make that window. Okay. Well, uh, I hope you're successful. <laughs> um, this, uh, this infrastructure... Um, you know, weakness has been something that that's that keeps me up at night for sure. Um, and uh, I would love to see some sort of dead. I, th I think we're there with Mars. Like that's that's um, I'm I'm pontificating my own personal opinion here now. But I feel like we've got enough assets at Mars, and we want to have more assets there. And other agencies want to have more assets there. That it feels like investing a little bit of backbone infrastructure is a is a smart move at this point in the game. Actually, yeah, like you said, we probably could have used it a while ago, but <laughs> better late than never. <laughs> And if it keeps you up at night, it keeps those of us who actually operate the vehicles, <laughs> keeps us up at night too. Uh, all right. So we're wrapping up here. Um, before we go, is there anything you want to plug to the listeners if they want to learn more about you or learn more about your proposal or just any websites you want to uh, send out into the world? Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I love talking space. I love talking science. I love talking space exploration. It's uh it's my absolute love, um, only second to uh, the Navy because I'm also an officer and uh, I love uh, I love doing that. But 
anything space, anything science, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating world that we live in. And, uh, you know, Mars 2020 is not, is not the end of the cool stuff we're doing. I mean, we've got, uh, we've got uh, Europa Clipper. We've got Europa Lander. We've got Mars Sample Return. I mean, I remember talking about the Mars Sample Return architecture when I was in elementary school. <laughs> And that was what NASA was going to do in 10 years. And, you know, it always kind of faded to the, to the distance. But, I mean, now supposedly we're going back to the moon in five years. That's really exciting. If, you know, we see a budget that can, that can pull it off, then that's really exciting that we're going back to, to the moon and, and going on to Mars with humans. And from a planetary science perspective, we're going, you know, to look for evidence of a habitable world at Jupiter's moon of Europa we're going to land something on Jupiter's moon or Europa. We're going to go back to Saturn. We're going to go back to Titan and Enceladus, and we're going to look for signs of life there. We've got the Icy Giants mission out to Uranus or Neptune. I mean, there is no shortage of really, really cool missions that we're doing out here at JPL. That's awesome. So I'm not leaving anytime soon. <laughs> there's, there's way too much neat stuff going on out here. All right. Well, we'll try and plug as much of that as we can in the uh, show notes. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today, telling us about your very cool proposal. Um, we're sending positive vibes to, uh, to help you out with uh, getting this selected. And uh, we hope to see, see some new infrastructure at Mars. That would be great. We're going to fly. We're going to keep pushing it until we get something there. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much. That's it for this week, Martians. Thanks to Michael for coming on the show and sharing his work and for tweeting about it so I knew it was happening. If you've got questions or thoughts on the episode, I would love to hear them. Feel free to email me at info at wemartians.com or reach us on Twitter at we underscore Martians. If you liked the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. It's as cheap as a buck a month and you get tons of bonus content too. For this episode, there's an additional 11 minutes of audio from Michael about his time as flight director at the end of the Opportunity mission, when NASA was trying to recover it from the dust storm. Check it out at patreon.com slash wemartians or in the show notes. And if that's not your thing, let us know how you feel on Apple Podcasts with a rating or a review. Also, please note, our 2018 Season 3 missing patches are starting to run out, but we still have some left, so pick one up for 17 bucks at shop.wemartians.com shipping is free anywhere on earth mars is unfortunately extra like a lot extra it's a great patch our artist uh, partner beth kerner did a great job with it uh, and it would look really great on a backpack or a bag or wherever you want to sew it anyway see you next time and at aries martians